everything that I've been praying for these people all week, I would pray now that you would bring to pass tonight, Lord, through the word of God and through your Holy Spirit. Lord, there, there is an important message that I believe you want each and every one of us to receive tonight and take to heart. And so help me to speak it clearly. And I pray, Lord, that you would clarify in each person's heart and mind um, where they stand with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a study outline in your worship folder that you can pull out if you want to follow along with me. I hope you will. Darren read this verse. It says, Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. The NIV puts it this way, Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Another translation says, work hard to prove that you really are among those that God has called and chosen. The Steve Benninger version goes like this, make very sure that you know that you know that you know that you know down deep in your heart that you belong to God, that Jesus Christ has saved your soul. Be very, very sure about that. That's where we're headed tonight in this sermon, because that's where the Apostle Peter takes us in this opening section of 2 Peter. The old-timers referred to this as having assurance of your salvation. How many have heard that term? Having assurance of your salvation. It refers to the peace of mind and the tranquility of, of soul that comes from knowing without a doubt where you stand with God and where you're headed after you die. I hope you have that. I hope you have assurance of your salvation. If not, I believe tonight is an important night for you. Tonight where God, through his spirit and through his word, wants to clarify in your heart and mind where you really stand with God. And I've been praying that he will do just that. Well, we read from 2 Peter, and I've got to ask, how many of you have never in your life heard a series of sermons covering the book of 2 Peter? Never in your life heard a series on 2 Peter. Wait, some of you have? Let me ask that again. How many of you have never in your life heard a series on the book of 2 Peter covering the whole book? Okay. That's more like what I suspected, okay? <laughs> I have not either. 2 Peter, really, it's kind of an obscure book. It's near the back of your Bible. And honestly, through the centuries, down through the centuries, it's gotten kind of a bad rap. One writer called it the ugly stepchild of the New Testament. How would you like to be a book of the Bible and be called that? I think it's because there are some very strange themes in the book of 2 Peter that we're going to encounter. Plus, uh, doubts have been cast on who wrote the book, even though it has Peter's name attached to it. The, the writing style of 2 Peter is so different from 1 Peter that a number of scholars have basically said it, it, this couldn't have been written by the same guy. Despite all that, 2 Peter is in the Bible, it's retained its place in the Word of God, and I find it to be a fascinating letter, and if there's one overarching theme in the book of 2 Peter, it is knowledge, knowledge. Peter is passionate that his readers know stuff, <laughs> that they have knowledge, that they know the truth about things. The word knowledge in its various forms appears 16 times in this letter, 
And so when we look at it through that lens, one way to outline Peter's challenge in the book of 2 Peter would, be, would look like this. Know the truth about spiritual growth. Know the truth about your own salvation. Know the truth about the scriptures. Know the truth about false teachers. We're going to get introduced to them in chapter 2. And know the truth about Christ's return. Our Lord wants us to acquire knowledge. He wants us to have understanding. But not just knowledge of facts, of, of true facts. Our God wants us to have knowledge of the person who is truth. Namely, Jesus Christ, who said, I am the truth. To know Him, to know Jesus in a personal way, to, to have a relationship with Him. And we're going to be challenged with that again and again and again in this letter of 2 Peter. So let's dive in. And as we heard, Peter opens his letter like this. Simeon Peter, you said, I thought his name was Simon Peter. Well, Simeon is the Greek version of the Hebrew Simon Peter. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle, note those two words, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge, there it is, of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now notice, as Peter opens this letter, notice the paradox in Peter identifying himself. Do you see it? He says, I'm a servant and an apostle. A servant and an apostle. I'll tell you what, that's humble authority right there. He says, I am Jesus' bond slave. I have been purchased by him. I belong to him. I am here on this planet to do his bidding. I'm a servant of Jesus, and I'm an apostle. I'm a member of a pretty elite group. I'm one of only 12 apostles on the whole planet. I have authority, unique authority from Christ, and, and it's as if Peter wanted them to realize, I'm going to be talking to you in a certain way as an apostle. I'm going to be talking to you with authority. I'm going to be saying some challenging and hard things to you. And I can do that because I've been entrusted with authority from Jesus Christ himself. I'm one of his apostles, but I'll do it humbly and gently because I love you and care for you. And I'm really for you. I want to help you make progress in your walk with Jesus. And then he says, I'm writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. And most scholars believe Peter was referring to the fact that God does not discriminate between Jew and Gentile in giving the gift of saving faith. And so, he, in effect, he was saying, you Gentile readers, he was writing primarily to Gentiles, you Gentile readers have received the same, have received the same quality of saving faith as we Jews have received. God does not show favoritism in how he distributes this wonderful gift of saving faith. There are no first-class Christians and second-class Christians and third-class Christians. We're all of equal standing at the foot of the cross. Amen? Praise God for that. And let's not miss that in speaking of Jesus, Peter identifies Jesus as God. Did you see that? He calls Jesus our God and Savior. Whenever, whatever our skeptical friends might think about Jesus, and people have all kinds of thoughts about Jesus, let's help them understand that the Bible writers very clearly present 
Jesus of Nazareth as God. God in the flesh. God come down from heaven to earth in a human body. And that really just reaffirmed what Jesus claimed for himself, right? When he said things like, I and the Father are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Before Abraham was, I am. So Peter presents Jesus as the second person of the Holy Trinity, as God. And so that's his introduction and then his greeting, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I like that, don't you? I think we ought to, I mean, we don't greet one another in our modern day kind of like they did in the old days, but I really like this. Why not say to each other, hey, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. That was a customary greeting among Christians of that day and I love it because it's a gospel greeting. Grace and peace. Grace is the root of the gospel. Peace is the fruit of the gospel. And these two wonderful blessings come to people, as it says, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a gospel greeting. Bible writers were so consumed with the gospel that they could hardly say hello without injecting some gospel reference into their opening greeting. Grace and peace to you in the knowledge of Jesus. Okay, author introduction and opening greeting sufficiently covered, right? Where's Peter going to go first in this letter? What theme is he going to open the body of his letter with? Well, we need to understand that that hovering in the background of chapter 1, get this, is chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we're going to discover that this man, Peter, the fisherman, turned disciple of Jesus, turned bold preacher for Christ, we're going to discover that he's kind of hot under the collar. He's kind of bothered. He's kind of irritated. He's a bit upset. And I think that's putting it mildly when we see his vocabulary in chapter 2. He's upset that God's people were being influenced by some teachers some popular teachers who were making the circuit in that day, and those teachers were turning the gospel into a license to go out and live however you wanted to live. Somewhat by what they said, somewhat by their teaching, but even more so by their lifestyle, by the way these teachers live their lives. It's kind of like what you still see today, right? When you turn on your TV and you see some slick preacher on the screen there, and he sounds really polished and really good, And then you find out, you discover that he's bilking his listeners out of their life savings and using it to live this over-the-top, luxurious lifestyle with mansions and yachts and planes and all of that. Then you find out his morals are kind of loose and he's not known for staying committed to his spouse and he's got a few other relationships going on as well. Well, in Peter's day, there were teachers who were living like that too, minus the planes and the yachts, but apparently they were teaching this. Apparently these teachers were going around to the different gatherings of Christians. Remember, we're still in the first century, right? It's all new. So people were vulnerable. They were were teaching people that receiving the grace of Jesus Christ makes it okay to live however you want to live. That believers are free in Jesus to do whatever they want, and it's all good because they're under grace. And they have freedom in Christ. Hey, we're free in Christ, man. 
We can, we can do whatever we want. We're saved, we're Christians, we go to church, we'll still go to heaven. Let's live it up, man. Let's go out and live like the people of the world live. Let's grab all the fun we can grab. So, hey, if you want to go sleep with your girlfriend or if you want to go out and get totally drunk, if you want to just leave your marriage for something that looks better, go for it. God will forgive you. If you want to be lazy and irresponsible and just lay around and renege on all of your commitments, no worries. You're saved, so... So don't feel bad about it. God God accepts you. He'll forgive you. You're free. That was what they were teaching and living. Now, we need to be honest and say this. The proclamation of the true gospel of grace can lend itself to that kind of warped thinking, to that kind of misinterpretation. In fact, I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said this. If nobody who hears you preach the gospel, ever says, well, if that's true, then why can't we just go out and sin up a storm? If you never, ever hear that, then perhaps the gospel you're preaching is not the gospel that Paul preached because that's what he was hearing. As he preached the gospel of grace, there were people out there who heard that and said, well, shall we then go out and sin that grace may abound? So let's admit the gospel of grace is scandalous, right? It's scandalous. Peter preached that gospel of grace, but in opening his letter here, he wants to reconnect faith with lifestyle. He wants to bring faith and lifestyle back back together. He wants to bring belief and behavior together and connect them and interlock them together and and to say one affects the other. He's going to say this. He's going to say, it does matter how you live your life as a professing Christian. It does matter. It matters to God, and it also should matter to you because of this. Because it's your lifestyle. Your lifestyle is what's going to get evidence, going to give evidence of whether or not you are a truly born-again person. As the old chorus used to say, if you're saved and you know it, then you're Life will surely show it. That's his message here. Yes, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. That's how Martin Luther put it. It always has accompanying deeds, works. They don't save us, but if you've got the real thing, it's going to show. It's got to show in your life. How many of you are following with me so far? Twelve of you. Okay, awesome. Well, Peter begins this opening section of his letter with this challenge to Christians to grow in godly living. Say that with me. Grow in godly living. Grow in godly living. And I want to challenge you today with this same thing, New Life Church. Grow in godliness. Set your heart on it. Aim your life at living a godly life. This is what God wants. If you want to feel saved... If you want to feel saved, if you want to have assurance in your heart that you are genuinely born again into God's family, then I urge you, like Peter did, to expend great effort to live a godly life. Go all out to flee temptation. Go all out to say no to sin and flee to righteousness. Chase after God. Go after His holiness in your life with everything that you've got. Not in order to earn God's favor, but because you have God's favor. 
This is God's calling for your life. And in this section, we see four truths that we need to know. Remember, this theme is knowledge, things we need to know, four truths we need to know that should help us feel encouraged and empowered and hopeful that we can grow in godly living. And here's the first one. I love this. It says, God has provided everything you need to live a godly life. You don't lack anything that you need in order to live a godly life. Did you know that? That's what Peter believed. Verse 3 of chapter 1, he, he writes this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Let me read that again. His divine power, speaking of God, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, everything we need, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, through those promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Wow, that's an amazing term. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. I think what Peter's really saying here is, what more do you need? It's not like God called you to salvation and called you to a holy life and then said, oh, but you're on your own from now on. <laughs> Make it happen. No, he gave you some great promises through which you can grow to become more and more and more like your Lord and Savior Jesus, live in a way that pleases him. He, he promised you a treasure chest full of resources, wonderful resources, that will enable you to share in his very nature. That's what it says, partakers of the divine nature. Not to be God, but to be more and more like God. Peter's saying that we have from God all the resources we need to live a godly life. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thanked God for that? These great and precious promises he talks about. What are they? What? What are these great resources that God has made available? And it doesn't say here specifically, but we can surmise a few things. We can, we can surmise what he may have had in mind. He might have been thinking about the promise of God's continual presence with us. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He might have been thinking about the promise of his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us and be our constant companion, convict us of our sins, strengthen us against evil. He might have been thinking about the promise of God's word that he gave to nourish our souls and to guide us and to point the way like it's doing tonight. Or maybe the promise of his church, the family of God, to come alongside us and encourage us and correct us when we need it. Spiritual brothers and spiritual sisters and overseers and mentors to be our companions on this journey that we call life. How about the promise of eternal rewards in heaven? Yeah, did you know about those? Awards that God, is, Jesus is going to give out on that day to believers for how they live their life on this earth. People like me who have a competitive streak in us, that adds an incentive for living a holy life. It's not the only incentive, but I like it. It's like, really? We can, we can earn rewards? We don't earn heaven, but we can earn rewards in heaven. Did you know that? Listen, if I'm not living a godly life, it's not God's fault. He has done his part. It's because I'm failing to tap in to all of the wonderful resources that he's made available to me through what he has promised. 
He's made every provision to empower me to live a godly life. Think about that. Thank God for that. Believe it. Receive it. God has done his part. But here's a corresponding truth that Peter would challenge us with as well. It's kind of the other side of the coin. God has provided us with everything we need to live a godly life. Yes, number two, growing in godliness will require focused, what I like to call grace-fueled effort on your part. Well, this is interesting. Verse 5, he continues, he says, For this very reason, in other words, because God has provided everything you need, what are the next three words? Make every effort. Guess what? You have a part too. You have a part too. Make every effort to supplement your faith, your saving faith that brought you into the kingdom, to supplement, to add to your faith virtue, Supplement virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection, or sisterly affection, as the case may be, with love. So what's he saying? Isn't he not saying that, well, God has a part in your spiritual growth, but you have a part too, and I, I do too. We're not robots. We have a role in cooperating with God's work in us. Now look, I love this. Here again is the gospel pattern that we see over and over and over again in Scripture. First, you have gospel declarations. This is what God has done. And then you have gospel exhortations. This is how you are to respond to what God has done. Over and over and over again we see this. First, what God did for us, then what we are to do in response. The the sequence of that is critical to understand if you're going to grow in your faith. First, we hear here that God has given us everything we need to live godly lives through his great and precious promises. Then, knowing that, Peter calls us to respond by seizing on those promises and giving maximum effort to draw upon all those resources that he's made available to us To live lives that reflect Him and please Him. So we have a part. We are to make every effort, but I like to call it grace-driven effort. Do you get this? Apart from a robust understanding of this, the challenge to live a godly life, a preacher standing up here and saying, live a holy life, live a godly life, it's just going to feel like one more call to do better and be good. If going at this with just your own human effort is all you've got going for you, you're going to find your attempts to grow spiritually are always going to be short-lived. You're going to go in spurts, and then you're going to conk out. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You're going to go good for a while, and then you're going to lose it, right? You'll be frustrated, exhausted, and lose heart trying to fight those temptations that plague you, especially your besetting sins. You might even get to a point where you decide it's not worth it and chuck it all and give up. Listen, there are two extremes that need to be avoided in how we think about this. The first extreme is this. God's going to do it all for me. I don't have to do anything. The second extreme is, it's all on me to figure this out and to grind out some 
smattering of spirituality in my life by my own efforts. Both of those are extremes that need to be rejected. Here's how the Apostle Paul put this cooperation between us and God. This is Philippians 2.13, one of my favorite verses. He says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Whose part is that? Next verse, For it is God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. You work out because God is working in. Do you see the, the synergy there? Do you see the cooperation there? Do you see God and us joining hands for our holiness, our godly life? That's what Peter is saying here. Our effort is necessary for adding godly virtues to our saving faith, but it needs to be effort that's fueled by grace. So often in scriptures, when you see a command that says do something, you'll see it surrounded by gospel truth. Forgive, even as God in Christ forgave you. Right? Over and over and over again. Look, your spiritual growth is not automatic. You pray to receive Jesus, you don't, you know, whoosh, Shoot on up to holiness. It's not automatic. You have a part. You're called to cooperate with God's work in you by getting focused and disciplining yourself to grow spiritually. Not be content being a baby Christian. There's too many people, I think, walking around. They've been in the faith for decades, but they're still like little babies. Still, you know, feed me, 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 me. <laughs> Paul said, train yourself to be godly. And the word is gymnazo, from which we get our word gymnasium. Go to the gym. Establish a workout regimen. Do your part. Make every effort. Because God has given you everything you need. Peter writes here, he says, build on your faith. Don't just, don't just be a baby Christian. Build on your saving faith. Add to it. Supplement it by cultivating character qualities. And the qualities he lists here are the qualities of Christ. It's a classic, one of those lists of Christian virtues that we find in the scriptures. He's saying you have faith, you're relying on Jesus and his sacrifice to forgive you of your sins. Now add to your faith. So imagine this house being built, okay? You're, you're building on it. Add to your faith what? Virtue. That means goodness. That means moral excellence. That means courageous decisions that reflect the character of Jesus. Whatever happened to virtue in our culture? Then he says, add to that knowledge. Supplement that with knowledge. That's spiritual insight and, and practical wisdom. And then he says, supplement that with self-control. Whatever happened to self-control in our culture? That's self-restraint, self-discipline. Mastering your passions and impulses rather than being controlled by them. Then he says, supplement that with steadfastness. And that's that patient endurance persevering day in, day out, despite obstacles, despite setbacks, despite the fact that it's getting hard. It's going to be hard to grow as a Christian. It will be. Count on it. He says, add to that, supplement that with godliness, which is awareness of God in every situation, every area of life. Add to that brotherly affection, which really is just kinship. It's family love for brothers and sisters in, in the family. And add to that, supplement that with love. That's the word agape, the Greek word agape, which is the 
self-sacrificing love for the good of another person that expects nothing in return. I think between the lines, Peter was saying, don't follow in the footsteps of those God-forsaken teachers who neglect the value of godly character, reject them, and make every effort to develop these qualities, these honorable traits, which were the, the character traits of Jesus himself. And do this, go about this by seeking the empowerment of all of those spiritual resources that God has given you. Grow in godliness. Here's where I, I, I like to mention the three holy habits that I like to talk about a lot when I talk to people. Three habits that have helped Christians for centuries tap into these marvelous resources. I, call them, I like to call them rhythms of grace. And, and, and these have become staple practices in my own life, and I found them to, to strengthen my heart for the battle and to strengthen me to, to say no to sin and to pursue godliness. And I commend them to you tonight. The three habits. Number one is daily quiet time with God. Daily quiet time alone with God. You and the Word of God and prayer and the Lord just spending time with do you know that there's a verse in Mark 3.14, it says, And Jesus called the twelve to him. It says, First he called them to be with him, and then he called them to go preach. And it struck me that before Jesus ever called his disciples to a great commission, he called them to a great companionship. Daily quiet time with God. Second, weekly connection time with a small group. You can't do it alone. There's things in your life where Satan has a foothold, and you can't beat it alone. You've tried. I'm going to talk about pornography in a minute here. And there's some of these things that get their hooks in us. It's not enough to go after that on your own by yourself in isolation. You've got to have a cadre of people around you doing life together with you to help strengthen you and encourage you and correct you when you need it. I need a small group. You need a small group. But not one that, you know, where you meet every so often when we feel like it or when nothing else is going on. It's a regular rhythm. And then third, a monthly sharpening time with a spiritual partner. Someone who knows you. Someone you've given permission to come alongside you and speak into your life. You trust them. I felt compelled to talk with you for just a moment or two about this, this thing that's affecting every single one of us in some way, directly or indirectly. It's affecting our culture. I think it fits here to talk about it because God is challenging us through Peter to make every effort as people who love Jesus and have been rescued by Jesus to make every effort to add moral excellence to our faith to develop godliness, to cultivate self-control, to restrain fleshly desires and impulses, to truly love other people and not view them as objects. My experience also tells me that this issue, perhaps more than any other, causes Christian people to doubt their salvation, and I'm talking about pornography. If statistics hold true in this room tonight, 70% of us, I should say 70% of males, and I think it's almost now nearly 50% of females, are viewing pornographic images on screen somewhere, on your phone, on your iPad, on your desktop computer, on the television, what the news is. 
And I hope that's not the case, but it may likely be. And I, I'm telling you, it is poison. And it's sucking the spiritual life out of the church and out of pastors even. It's killing us. You're familiar with this Me Too campaign, right? As women now, and now men, you know, are, are, are coming out and saying, I, I've, I'm the victim of sexual abuse. I think it's up to 1.7 million. I think I heard that figure this week. People who now on Twitter have said, Me Too, Me Too. It's happened to Me Too. It's happened to Me Too. The, the, does the, the scope of that movement surprise you? It doesn't me. Because we live in a sex-saturated culture, don't we? It's just everywhere. And so much sexual abuse that's been shown again and again and again is fueled by the viewing of pornography. Whenever I hear uh, people in the pornographic industry say, there's no connection between viewing pornography and sexual abuse, I say, are you nuts? You are an idiot. Of course there's a connection when desire is inflamed like that. kind of understand this out there in the world with people who don't know Jesus and aren't anchored to truth but Peter would say to us Christians I think he would say to us there's no excuse God has provided everything you need to live a godly life there's no excuse for true believers caving in to this temptation but we've got to make every effort and I, I wonder sometimes if we're really intent on killing it putting it out of its misery in our life. This is your battle. Maybe your step is to uncover this to someone, to a spiritual partner, because as long as things stay covered, as long as they stay concealed and hidden, you won't ever beat it until someone else knows what you struggle with. I so encourage you to ask God to show you, who can I, who can I say something to about this? Who's a safe person? And begin to bring it out into the light. We actually have a group here that meets regularly to help people. It's for men right now. Help men break free from the stranglehold that pornography has on them. I'm telling you, it's killing them. God has a part in your spiritual growth, but you have a part too. Cooperate with him. And... and let me tell you what's exciting. What's exciting is when you begin to see real growth, real evidence of change and growth in your life. Isn't that exciting? When you begin to say, you know what? I'm not the same person I was six months ago or a year ago. I'm not battling the same things now. I've got new challenges, sure, but I can see I'm changing. When you see that in your life or in your kids' lives or in the life of someone that you've been working with, it's so exciting when you see Christian character emerging in them. When you see improvement in moral excellence and self-control, you start to see real love in, uh, for other people, even acts of self-sacrifice. That's very exciting. And one reason it's exciting is because of number three, growing in godliness will result in wonderful spiritual benefits. Oh yes, there are some wonderful benefits of growing in Christ. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 8. For if these qualities, the ones he's just talked about, all those virtues, if these are yours and are increasing, if you're growing in this, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. 
Therefore, brothers, here it is, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wow, are you getting this? It's worth it to put effort into your spiritual growth. It's worth it to get focused and get disciplined. There's value, there's reward. You'll be glad you did. It's beneficial for you to grow in godliness, self-control and love for other people. There's benefit for others. There's benefit in this life and there is benefit in the life to come. He mentions not three benefits like I have for you on your outline there, but actually four bonus. Actually, I just forgot to put the other one in. This is so good. Each of these could be a sermon in itself. The first one, the first benefit of growing in your spiritual walk, growing in godliness, is fruitful spiritual effectiveness. Who doesn't want that? Being productive, being impactful, your life making a difference in the lives of other people, that's an outcome, a benefit, a result of growing spiritually. People writing you notes saying, thank you for your example. Thank you for your investment in my life. You ever get a note like that? Your kids posting on Twitter, happy Father's Day to my dad, who is my role model in life. You know what? If you're not growing, if you're not adding to your faith, if you're not giving effort to rein in fleshly impulses and passions, if you're not making use of all those spiritual resources God provided, and saying no to temptation and yes to God, if you're not strengthening your character, those things aren't going to happen. You will be unfruitful and ineffective in your life. Oh, how I urge you to set your heart to set your heart on growing in godliness for your sake. A second benefit is the clarity of spiritual vision, clarity of spiritual vision. You'll just see things more clearly. People I trust the most to have an accurate perspective on situations are people who walk close to God. You'll have the best grasp of the situation because you'll have God's perspective on it. You'll be better equipped to assess your own life even because your vision will be sharper. You won't be nearsighted and blind like Peter talks about here. You won't forget all that God forgave you of when he saved you and all that he saved you from in your old life. You'll have clear vision. Who doesn't want that? Third, you'll have assurance of your own salvation. All of this has been building up to this, really. Are you sure that you're saved? How do you know? What evidence is there? How do you put your conscience at ease when the pangs of guilt start to pound away? What do you do or say to combat those accusing thoughts? Do you know what I'm talking about? Those accusing thoughts, when they stop bombarding your brain, they can go like this. What a sorry excuse for a Christian you are. Look at you. Look what you just did. No self-respecting Christian would treat their sister that way. No true Christian would have those kinds of thoughts towards their mother. No Christian would deceive their boss like that. No Christian would, would run to the fridge every time you feel depressed. 
or look at those kinds of images on that screen, you're no more a Christian than that chair is. You're on your way to hell and you know it. How do you dispel those kinds of accusations when they come speaking to you? It's interesting. For people who have doubts about their salvation, nowhere, did you know this? Nowhere does the Bible ever say, hey, go back and try to recall exactly what you prayed when you prayed to receive Christ. Try to remember the exact words that you prayed to make sure you got it right, make sure you got the formula right. It never tells us to do that. Nowhere does it say, hey, go back and try to remember at age 7 or age 15 or age 22 if you were really sincere when you prayed. It doesn't say that. What it does say over and over and over and over again is this, Look at your life for evidence that God is in you. Not in the rearview mirror in the past. Look at the present day at your life for evidence that God is in you. Do you see any love in your heart? Do you see a desire to be holy? Yeah, you might slip up from time to time, but it's a slip up. Do you have a desire to be holy? Do you feel a kinship with the people of God? Do you feel a bond with them? Do you want to obey Christ? Do you want to love him? Do you, do you see any of these things? These are from God. God produces these things. True assurance comes to our hearts when we see overwhelming evidence that God lives in us and that our lifestyle and our behavior and our choices and our loves and our inclinations are reflective of his own. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. That's how to gain assurance of your salvation. Look at your life for evidence of the marks of a Christian. You'll go crazy trying to remember if you said the right words in that prayer or were really, really sincere, 100% sincere. Maybe you were only 96% sincere. You know, that's, that's futile. I so want you to have assurance of your salvation. I so want you to be 100% sure that you're saved that if you were to die tonight, you, you could say, Steve, I'm 100% sure for heaven as if I'd already been there a thousand years. Don't you want to have that? It's hard to make a lot of progress in your Christian walk if you're always struggling with doubts. Am I even really saved? God wants it for you. 1 John 5.13 says, These things I have written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, not hope. Not, well, maybe, but you'll know that you have eternal life. Or as I like to say, that you'll know that you know that you know that you know down deep in your heart. Now, some people do feel assured of their salvation, but they shouldn't. Because <laughs> they're phonies, they're playing a game. And Jesus is going to rock their world, if not in this life, then in the life to come. Lord, Lord, did we not do all these wonderful things in your name? And Jesus will say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. You're a phony. You used my name, but you weren't the real deal. We, didn't, we weren't in covenant relationship with each other. There are people who find themselves conflicted about where they stand with God. They have doubts. And I think there are certain cases, listen carefully, there are certain cases where the best course, if you're trying to help that person, the best course is to encourage them to place themselves outside of the kingdom of God. Twice in the past several months, I've looked a person in the eye and said this. Now, you came to me because you wanted my counsel, my opinion, and to be honest, here's what I think. 
I think you'd be best served. I think you'd be best served by viewing yourself as a non-Christian. I can't tell you if you're truly saved or not, but based on everything you've told me, all your doubts and what you've told me about your lifestyle and your lack of passion for Jesus, what if you just establish this as your baseline conclusion, I'm not saved? Then we can at least know where you stand and we can make progress from there and how to move forward. But all this constant wondering and doubting is putting you in no man's land and I think the enemy's having a field day with you. In both cases... In both cases, both people establishing that kind of clarity, as you can imagine, was a little disconcerting. But it also seemed to provide some equilibrium because then we could approach the conversation from a solid starting point and talk about what it would mean to truly believe the gospel and be a Christian. More common in the church, though, I think is this. Some people have little or no assurance of their salvation, but they should. I mean, you're a genuine believer, but you're constantly plagued with nagging doubts, and God wants you to have a certainty in your heart. God wants his true children to be confident of their place in the family. If that's you, I've been praying that today God the Spirit would assure your hearts that you truly are in the kingdom of God, that you truly are in the family of God. Then you could stop trying to remember if you really meant it when you prayed 24 years ago. You just look at your life and you see the evidence that's there that God lives in you. And you'll just drive a stake in this moment and say, you know what, doggone it, I am a believer. I am saved. I am born again. I am in the family. I'm going to drive a stake right here tonight and just decide that. And then I can move forward from here. The fourth benefit of growing in godliness is this, abundant reward when you get to heaven. Remember what? Peter said, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. That's assurance. Now, you won't stumble. You won't stumble into crippling doubt about where you stand with God. That's assurance now. Then verse 11, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So there's benefit in this life of growing spiritually and then on that day when you awake on the doorstep of heaven, it says there will be a rich welcome that will await you. And the picture, picture this now, is of, a, of an Olympic athlete in ancient times, an Olympic athlete who was away from home. He was at the games. He was at the Olympic games and he was competing there and now he's on his way back to his hometown and he won. He won, the, he won his competition, and he's, he's coming back home now. It's his homecoming. Think of the honor. Think of the crowds. Think of the townspeople, the cheering and the celebration, the joy of it all, a rich welcome home. That's the picture Peter is painting here of true believers one day when we get to heaven. And it does include rewards. I'm going to preach on that in a couple of months. It's been a few years. Suffice it to say that when you get to heaven as a true Christian, you will be so glad you expended time and effort and energy and self-discipline growing as a Christian while you were here. Think about it. The people who will be there because you invested in their life, the welcome from Jesus himself, come on in, son, come on in, daughter. 
his words, well done, well done. All the rich experiences and rewards that await you will make it all worthwhile. This is why Peter says, make every effort to grow in godliness. There's benefit in this life. There's benefit to the people who live around you. And there will be awesome benefit one day. Now, one final thought here. Peter wraps up this section. It really becomes apparent that this letter is his final word and testament, doesn't it? Verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, those character, those virtues that he's talked about. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus has made clear to me. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm about ready to die. I'm about ready to leave this life. Verse 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. How did he do that? The letter. <laughs> he wrote the letter. We still have it 2,000 years later. I read this and I see the heart of a shepherd coming through here, don't you think? Here's a spiritual pastor, an overseer who's facing imminent death basically says, I think my days with you are numbered, so that's why I'm writing you all of these things. I know you know this stuff. You ever remind someone of what they already knew? I know you know this stuff, but I felt it important to write it down in this letter so that you'll have a record of what I said after I'm gone. I hope you'll read it again and again and again. It'll serve as an ongoing reminder after I'm gone of the importance of going all out to grow spiritually. I know you know this already, but we all need to be reminded of what we already know. And so for this last point, I'll put it like this. Growing in godliness is aided by ongoing reminders from spiritual overseers and mentors. Peter knew. He knew that memory can fade fast when the pressure is on. He knew that Memory can fade when some dynamic new teacher comes on the scene and says things that sound appealing. He knew how we tend to operate after somebody's gone. Peter? Peter who? <laughs> I don't remember any Peter. Do you? I like what this new guy is saying, how God's grace allows us to just sit back and let him do it all, and we can even dive into the world and partake of all of those pleasures. It's all good. And Peter's saying, pull out my letter. Pull out my letter, pull out the scroll, read it to the congregation again. Remind people, let me speak to you from the other side. Let me remind you of the truth. I think for us to apply this particular point, obviously reading and preaching through Second Peter is one way to apply it, but I would also ask this, who do you have in your life? Do you have someone in your life that you've given permission to remind you of what you already know. And even to call you out if you need calling out. Is there somebody like that? Can you name a person from whom you would readily be willing to hear concerns? Like someone who came to you and said, whatever happened to your zeal for God that you used to have? Or 
I'm not seeing this particular character quality on display in your life these days. Or, you know what? It seems to me that you're trying to drive as close to the ledge as possible without falling off. Or, man, what I just observed with you and your spouse, I mean, that was a lack of self-control, don't you think? Or, I've noticed you're always joking about things that I think in earlier days you would have been offended by. And now you're telling those jokes. Maybe you have a blind spot there. Who would you be willing to hear that from and take it to heart? Habit three talks about having a spiritual partner. That's the kind of person I'm talking about here. Maybe someone in your small group or a trusted friend or a mentor or someone, someone you've given permission to say those kinds of things and you're not going to fall off and punch them in the nose. But you know they care about you and, and, and they have wisdom and you go, okay, I'll, I'll, let me think about that. And then on the other side of the equation, I would ask, is there someone that you feel prompted by the Spirit to go to and remind them of something they already know or speak a concern to them? Could be something that God uses in their life. So as we wrap up, I, I want to ask you this question. What has God said to you tonight through 2 Peter chapter 1? What's going to be your takeaway from this sermon tonight? Put a couple of lines on the bottom of your outline. Will you write something there? Will you take a moment and consider what, what's my takeaway? Is there one? I prayed that there would be. Maybe write it down in a sentence, maybe in the form of a prayer. Like, Lord, I haven't really been taking my own spiritual growth very seriously. Please forgive me, I repent of that. Lord, I sense you calling me to finally deal with that thing that has enslaved me for so long. With your help, I will, I'm going to uncover it to somebody. Lord, to be honest, I don't really think I'm saved. I don't really think I'm a true Christian. There's not much evidence that you live in me, but, but I want that, Lord. I want that. Or, Lord, thank you for assuring my heart in these moments that I am saved, that I do belong to you. Or maybe, Lord, I need somebody in my life who will be honest with me. Show me who that could be. Would you take a moment and write down back of your outline a takeaway from tonight what would that be for you father i thank you for your word i thank you for this letter that we call second peter and as we walk through it over the course of the next several weeks i pray that you would take the printed words off the page or off the screen and embed them deep into our hearts lord and i pray tonight in fact, Lord, I feel like I want to ask the people here if you have brought clarity to anybody tonight with regard to where they stand with you, if you've provided an assurance of salvation to anyone who's in this room tonight. And if so, would you raise your hand? Does anybody sense like, okay, now I know for sure that I am in the family of God. I had some doubts. Now I know for sure. I see three hands, four hands, five, six. Thank you, Lord. 
Thank you for providing that assurance, and I pray that uh, these folks now, having driven that stake in the ground, would be able to start making some real tracks in their walk with you. Help us as a church to grow in godliness. Lord, strengthen us to say no to those temptations that we're so susceptible to, to say yes to Jesus, to not take take advantage of your grace, but take it lightly. For you said, be holy even as you are holy. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.